and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to take a ride? Welcome to Ron Fuller's Stutcast. I'm not Ryan Last. I'm sure you have intuited that by now. My name is Luke Kippelman. I'm an associate producer here at the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and I'm filling in for the great one this week. And man, it's my luck that I get to fill in for this particular episode of the Studcast. It is going to be wall-to-wall jam-packed. We're going to be covering the month where Southeastern Wrestling's rubber hits the road. And of course, Without further ado, let's bring in the host of the Studcast, the third-generation legendary wrestler, promoter, pro-hockey magnate, would-be septic tank mogul. Here is the man, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. How are you, Ron? I'm great, Lou. And uh, let me start off by saying I'm happy to have you on here with me, Lou. You and I know each other. We've done some things together. And uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on here. Uh, I'm out there in San Francisco. What a beautiful city. And uh, really, uh, we've got a great one today. Like you, like you said there, um, uh, and, and I'd like to start it off, Lou, if you wouldn't mind, uh, mm-hmm. just a little bit, because the last two weeks, the last two studcasts, we have uh, talked about the Bob Armstrong tribute. And uh, I just want to let fans know out there that that was a tremendous show. Uh, Bob was just blown away by it. Uh, it had a little bit of everything in it. It had so many wrestlers from all over the world that sent in these tributes that there were some tears shed at that one. Uh, it was it was really a great event, and uh, I thank everybody that got the chance to come out. And uh, and I just uh, can't say enough about Bob Armstrong. In fact, he, he, he is in this show today. You know, uh, that shows how far we go back, that uh, it's his first uh, appearance in Southeastern Wrestling in 1975. And so uh, if you don't mind, Lou, I think I'm just going to let's just get her rolling here. Uh, As you mentioned, I'm going to be discussing the uh, big cards in Southeastern in November of 1975. Three Coliseum shows in a row. Uh, That We'd never done that before. In fact, we'd only had three Coliseum shows period, up until this point. And November of 75 is kind of like the month we turned the corner at Southeastern, and we started to really grow into the big company we're going to become. 
We're going to talk about the preparations and the reasons uh, for the raised ticket prices in the Coliseum shows. As I mentioned, three straight shows in all. And uh, we've got such superstars in these shows as Andre the Giant, the Southern Heavyweight Champion Bob Armstrong, the NWA World Champion Jack Briscoe. Uh, we got hair versus mask matches, two ring battle royal matches, world title matches, brass knuck matches, Southeastern first lights out match, and much, much more in the month of November. It was a tremendous month for wrestling fans in the Southeastern area. And we will, for the first time in Southeastern history in this program today, have four cities running in one week. We're beginning to grow out of that one town a week into the three towns a week. Now we're going into the fourth town a week as Southeastern and it just continues to grow in popularity. Uh, we're on WBIR-TV in Knoxville, Tennessee at this point. We're on WJHL-TV in Johnson City, Tennessee. That's called the Tri-Cities. And uh, we're going to focus today on the first Coliseum show in 1975. Uh, like I said, we're entering a time frame in which wrestling on the eastern side of the state of Tennessee is beginning to become the giant that it's going to be in the future. Western side of Tennessee, Memphis was always a tremendous wrestling town. And we're about to develop Knoxville into the Memphis of the East. So uh, let's start off today with why we're going into Knoxville Coliseum after such a long time of being out of that building. And as I said in the past episodes, the injury and the off time I was experiencing gave me time to look into the future of my young company. During September and October of 1975, while I was injured with a collarbone, I was out almost every day visiting high schools in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia. I was trying to get into those schools' gymnasiums by giving them the 20% of the gate. Every time we went there, in return, they gave me the use of their gymnasium. This program turned out to be a tremendous idea for both the schools and for Southeastern Wrestling. Most small cities didn't have large buildings enough to hold events, and this solved that problem for me. Uh, the program worked so well that after the first year, the results for the schools were so outstanding that I had many schools that I could just call up and say, I, I want to get into uh, this school. Can you call and recommend me? And I had several school people, the principals. I did business with the principals. I did business with the football coaches. Uh, whoever was sponsoring the wrestling, and they were so happy with the money that they were making for their schools that they, they were eager to help me. So I didn't have to uh, get these relationships myself anymore. I could just call some of the coaches or the principals and say, look, I'd like for you to contact such and such school and see if you can open the door for me so that I can go and meet with them. Made my job a whole lot easier, to be quite honest with you, uh, rather than just knocking on the door. But it, well, I was pretty bit, pretty popular at this point. We're getting over. TV is really getting over. And I didn't have much trouble in getting these schools to take me on and to take wrestling on because they recognized me when I come through the door. So I was also, during this two-month period, contacting wrestlers that I felt could make a very quick difference in my company's future. I got commitments from people like Don Carson, who started in November of 1975. He's going to be on this studcast. In December, Homer O'Dell, that managed Buddy Cope to the Georgia Heavyweight Championship in the late 60s in, in Atlanta. Uh, he's coming in 
in December. Butch Malone is going to come in and partner up with Norville Austin, and I'm going to have Homer Odell manage that team. They're going to become a very, very good heel team. Two family members from Florida that have been working longer than I had. Family members. These are Welches too, Jack Welch and Roy Lee Welch. Uh, and they had been wrestling longer than I had. They, they're another team that's coming in in December. And still one more team called the Superstars coming in in, in December. January 1976, Jimmy Golden is going to come back, which is a wonderful boost for Southeastern. The fans there really love Jimmy. The Worldwide Oriental Star Tora Tanaka is coming in in January 76. Jerry Stubbs' cousin from Georgia, Mike Stallings, who was a great athlete and a darn good wrestler, is coming in that same month. In February, talent coming in uh, is Dick Steinborn, who is a great talent in the ring, and he's full of great booking ideas at the same time. And uh, so I'd quickly turn disaster with the loss of the assassin and rock hunter in the last couple of episodes. They gave me a notice. In less than a month, they're going to be leaving the crew, and this is kind of what I've got coming behind them. So I began to think my getting hurt was turning out to be a blessing in a way. You know, maybe if I hadn't been hurt, I might not have worked so hard to get in touch with all these guys and to make this happen. So I felt like I really helped my territory to get off the ground. Let's talk for a second about the television show, which at this point is becoming a tremendous hit. And uh, and it's drawing a tremendous amount of interest all over the southeast. Soon I would be scouting for new television stations for southeastern in the area rather than schools. The more TV stations I could put my program on, the more cities I could wrestle in. The problem with getting on TVs in markets in which there were no matches being held. Uh, you know, you couldn't find a place where they had any towns that were open and available that somebody didn't claim was their town. So uh, you could try to, to take over someone's TV and drive them out. But that just wasn't the way I wanted to do business. I had purchased my right to do business in Knoxville from John Kazana, and I was proud of that. Four years later in 1979, I'm going to encounter some guys that are working for me that didn't have the same feelings about who owned what. And I uh, don't need to go into that now. We'll be talking about that later, but uh, you know who I'm talking about. And for those patrons of the Super Stud cast, uh, you'll recall back in our archives, there's definitely a lot of discussion about that period of time in 1979 and 1980. Yes, one of my Super Stud casts is devoted to the Knoxville Wrestling War, and it's the, actually the most popular stud cast so far. The entire country by this point is saturated with wrestling promoters. Now, usually they could claim ownership of the, of the rights to promote based upon where their television station signals went. Now, many promoters have been operating for years and were recognized by other promoters. Uh, so, you know, the country's pretty well tied down. I was lucky to get in when I did and to get into one city that I can eventually make a territory out of. And that's where the NWA gained its strength. They had been adding quality wrestling promoters and companies into their organization since 1948 when they were founded. Thus, the name Territory. <laughs> you know, that's where it comes from. These promoters were drawing circles on the map and saying, these are my towns because this is where my television goes. And if you were accepted by the NWA, it meant you were big time. It also meant that anyone trying to move in your area had to deal 
with not just you, but other promoters and their wrestlers. Ownership of cities was based upon, as I said, TV penetration, how far out your signal went. Those owners in the NWA were protected by the sheer power of the entire group of promoters. I was accepted in the NWA in 1975. Southeastern was one of the last territories in the United States to be added to the National Wrestling Alliance. I think a great deal of that vote was because of who I was, you know, in getting in. My grandfather, Roy Welch, was one of the original founders of the National Wrestling Alliance. My father had always been involved with NWA territories, and he joined the NWA uh, with his Arizona territory in 1962. And I went to all the meetings. Uh, I became uh, pretty popular. Uh, they used to ask me to get up and speak about uh, how, to run, how to do television and, and how to technically make your program better. And by 1985, I was actually elected vice president of the National Wrestling Alliance. So let's talk about the reasons that I decided to raise the ticket prices for the three Coliseum shows. Uh, November 7th, 1975, we returned to the Coliseum for the first time in more than six months. The last show previously was on April 27th, 1975. The indoor building at Chilhowie Park only held about 3,000 fans. During the three weeks we were in the Coliseum, I prepared for the return to the park by working with the people at the park to expand the building's capacity. We added about 500 seats on the upper level. To me, you know, Lou, to me, the, the worst case scenario for any sports business is to turn fans away, especially if your company is in a growing phase. When you work hard to create the opportunity to welcome new patrons to any business, but can't provide them your services or product when they arrive there, that's a pretty disastrous thing to happen to you. What we were accomplishing every Saturday on TV, making new fans by the hundreds, literally, could quickly be undone by a bad experience when new fans finally decided to buy a ticket. It wasn't just what happened in the ring that was important. But every aspect of what that new fan experienced from the time they parked their cars until the time they got back in them and went home, it was all extremely important. You could not afford to lose new customers. Chilhowie Park had been the home for wrestling fans for many years prior to my arrival. It was perfect for those who had become accustomed to it. However, on WBRR TV show, with all the bells and whistles, was now reaching and appealing to a huge new audience with little interest in visiting the park for anything except maybe the once-a-year fair. That's about the only time they came out to Chilhowie Park. So I desperately wanted that big new audience to get involved enough to buy that first ticket. I was confident I could make long-term fans out of them if I could get them in the door. And that's why I knew in order for Southeastern Wrestling to become the company I had envisioned, I needed to have a building large enough to contain thousands more than the park's venues could ever hold. Uh, buildings that appealed to everyone watching the TV program. I worried that I would lose some of my regular fans that were accustomed to the park venues if we went to the Coliseum. And I was correct about that. I could see a big change in our audience at the Coliseum, especially on this first event in November of 1975. A difference in the audience from the Chihuahua Park crowd. I realized the regular fans were true wrestling fans, and if I lost them temporarily by having events in the Coliseum, they're going to come back because they love their wrestling. And even though they 
the Coliseum is a new place for them, and it was so big, you know, they, they were uncomfortable there. But they're going to return if they say, well, I'm not coming anymore because they love their wrestling so much. They, they've got to have it. It's, it's in their blood and, at this point. And Les Thatcher and I, we, we, months earlier, we met one of those new fans that watched Southeastern that had not seen it before, didn't watch uh, the former program, John Kazana's show that much. And this gentleman owned his own business. His name was Bob Pope. And he's going to become a very important person in my life in the coming years. He's going to be my partner in the hockey business. He's also going to be my partner in USA Championship Wrestling, the company that I formed after I sold Continental Wrestling in 1987. He was a perfect example of the new people watching and really enjoying wrestling for the first time. But he was hesitant to come to the park to attend. I asked him as a favor to me if he would roam around the Coliseum on these three upcoming shows to listen to the older fans that uh, might be uncomfortable in the Coliseum, just to see how they talked about it, to test my theory that they might be uncomfortable. And he confirmed my thoughts and heard many fans complain how big the building was. They complained a little bit about the raised prices, how much they missed the Jacobs building at the park, and, and their intention not to come back to the Coliseum. Well, obviously, that concerned me. These are my real fans, and uh, but I knew... We we had to start appealing to the masses. The crowd needed to become a blend of people wearing overalls and people wearing sport coats for us to be successful. Uh, that's the way I looked at it, you know. And we're going to have some people that live out in the country and they're going to be a little uncomfortable in the Coliseum, but we're going to get those people that have sport coats on that are coming to an event that they'd never seen before, and we're going to be able to make fans out of them. The only way to make that happen was the great talent, a great TV, great angles, and give them something they simply could not miss. They just had to come. It didn't make any difference whether they liked the building or not. I was forced to make another big-time change when we went to the Coliseum. I decided to raise the prices because we were going to pay much more to rent the bigger building and hopefully draw a more affluent crowd because we were in that big building. Bear in mind that the ticket prices in 1975 are probably in the same range as most territories of that time. We were charging about the same as they were charging in Memphis and, and St. Louis and, and a lot of other cities. Chill Howie Park ticket prices were ringside, $4. General admission, $2.50 for adults and $1.50 for children. Now, bear in mind, this is 1975, so, you know, uh, the Coliseum prices we went up a little bit. We went ringside up a dollar to five. There was a first balcony in that building that was beautiful seats, and uh, we charged four dollars for those. General admission went up by 50 cents only to adults for three dollars and children for two. At those price levels, Lou, uh, we, were, we were just about a dollar more per ticket than the park, or about 25 percent higher than our normal price. I thought uh, I had to do it. It made sense business-wise, and I just felt like the Coliseum is the ticket. It's where we need to be. So before we discuss the Coliseum show on November 7, 1975, let's talk about the three other cities that ran that same week for a total of four cities run by Southeastern in one week for the first time ever. On Tuesday, November 4, 1975, we ran the Tri-Cities as we had been doing for a while in northeastern Tennessee, up in Johnson City. We ran in the rec center that had been the home of wrestling 
in that part of the country going all the way back to my granddad's day in the 1940s. I was splitting the gate each week with Christine and Jerry Jarrett out of Nashville. Uh, Jerry was sending me additional talent that was necessary sometimes for me to make up a full card because I wasn't working six nights a week and I didn't have a whole full-time crew. We were on WJHL, I mentioned earlier, a strong TV station. There was also one of the country's first cable systems that went into West Virginia, as far away as West Virginia. The building would hold about 2,000 fans, but at that point in time, we were only about half filling it. Uh, Our Southeastern TV show had not been there very long, but it wouldn't be long until that building wouldn't hold nearly all the fans that wanted to come and see wrestling. Turned away fans in that building for years because it was the largest building, one of the largest buildings in that entire area. And uh, it just wasn't big enough. Uh, We ran another town. On Thursday, November 6th, we ran our first match ever in Harlan, Kentucky. And this city, it was destined to be one of the best small towns in America for wrestling. It had a beautiful round gymnasium that held 3,000, most of the time absolutely crazy fans, by 1976. It was a very dangerous town, especially for heels, but extremely profitable for Southeastern. Ron Wright would have his airplane shoved off the mountaintop airport (laughs) by fans and destroyed. Uh, Burned up at the bottom of the mountain uh, two years later. (laughs) And I would eventually switch that town to Saturday nights every other week. And it would provide great payoffs for the boys for years. We ran basically the same card as was run in Johnson City two days earlier. It drew about a thousand people our first night in Harlan. We were just uh, getting started. It's a Thursday night. Once we moved it to Saturday, that 1,000 jumped to 2,000. Two years later, that uh, building was totally full. And sometimes there'd be 3,000 inside and 3,000 outside that wanted to get in. So we obviously had a long way to go in 1975. But we were breaking this ground and we were getting these new towns started. On that same week, on the Saturday night, we returned to Morristown, Tennessee where we were beginning to establish ourselves and put about 1,200 fans in that building that night. Uh, And that building was a smaller building. It didn't seat but about 1,500. But there was a bunch of times that we got 2,000 or more in that little building when the fire marshal didn't show up. So in the summertime, we ran in the baseball stadium right next door to the building, and and would sometimes break 4,000 people in Marstown in the baseball stadium in the summertime. So this was beginning of a regular schedule that alternated every other Saturday night between Harlan, Kentucky and Marstown, Tennessee. This was a very effective because fans knew which Saturdays we would be there. And I didn't have to spend a lot on advertising because they said, hey, they're not here this Saturday. They'll be there next Saturday. And two weeks later, they'll be there. Fans got to where they know what your schedule is. You didn't have to do a lot of advertising. They're going to come to their wrestling, and they know what the night is. So let's talk about the basic card for all three of the shows that I just talked about in the first week of November 1975. Les Thatcher worked against Don Lambert, with Thatcher winning. Uh, Robert Fuller worked against Tony Peters, and uh, Robert won those matches. A very popular match during this time frame, Norvell Austin wrestled against Charlie Cook, uh, and Austin won most of those matches. I think he won all those matches. Ron Wright and Tommy Siegler wrestled against the Assassin and Rock Hunter. Wright and Siegler won those matches. 
uh, it became customary for baby faces to win in a lot of these smaller cities in Southeastern because it was too dangerous for the Hills to win. When the Hills won, we had, we had riots. So we tried to keep guys from getting killed by letting the baby faces win. Uh, the smaller cities were just too dangerous for Hills to win in. One reason was the police that worked the matches in these smaller cities. They're not as experienced as the Knoxville police that are used to run, working wrestling matches. And they know how to control the crowd, what to look for, how to stop something before it begins. To make matters worse, the local police in these smaller cities were fans themselves, and they didn't much want to protect the heels. <laughs> it was it was not a situation, not a good situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, bear in mind, this part of the country was loaded, like I said, with danger for the hills, not just from the fans, but occasionally from the police themselves. Uh, in fact, years down the road, a policeman is going to get in the ring in Harlan, Kentucky, and pull his gun on Dick Steinborn in the middle of a match. So you know, there's a policeman <laughs> that's that's doing something that a fan would be thrown in jail for. And he's in there about to shoot a wrestler that's that's done nothing to him. And, you know, and as imposing as the Mongolian stomper was, who's worked for me in 76, 77, 78, he made me hire a Knoxville police bodyguard to take him to every town outside Knoxville just to guard his back. I really didn't mind, though, because stomper needed protection. And my gosh, what a talent he was. So these three cities other than Knoxville and Knoxville's running this same week. The combined payoff for these three cities were were something like this. Don Lambert and Tony Peters and the ref got a total of about 180 for all three cities. That's not very much, but we're still in our infancy in these small towns. Robert uh, Les Thatcher, Norville Austin, Charlie Cook got a total of 270 each. And the top guys, Ron Wright, Siegler, the assassin and hunter, got about 345 each. We're going to take a break right now before we get into the big Knoxville Civic Coliseum shows. And we'll give you this opportunity to listen to David Summers tell you about the newly released part two of Super Studcast number 23 with listener Q&A with our man, the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Part two of the fantastic Super Studcast number 23 with the captivating Dr. Tom Pritchard is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This is a phenomenal walk through wrestling history that can only be found in the three-hour deep dive of a Super Studcast. This is one surprise after another as these two great wrestling historians discuss the sport in detail. They talk matches, training, territories, wrestlers, Dr. Tom being hung in an angle. And for the first time ever on a Super Studcast, the guest answers questions from the patrons at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Find out for yourself why fans around the world say it's the best deal in wrestling. And you can listen to part two of Super Studcast number 23 right now. It's listener Q&A with Dr. Tom Pritchard, who grew up as an assistant to the legendary Paul Bosch in Houston and made his mark all over wrestling, in the ring and as a trainer. Check it out now at patreon.com slash studcast or tnstud.com. Only $2.99, very much worth your time. And now, Ron, we're getting into the big, big matches at the Civic Coliseum in Knoxville in November 75. Yes, sir. And uh, we're going to find the 
Find out who was on the first three Coliseum shows in November 75. There was a record number of matches on November 7, 1975. Seven matches in all. Uh, I think it was the first time they'd ever had seven matches on any card in Knoxville's history. And uh, I'm going to reveal the results of this card later on in the studcast. But right now, I'll give you what the card actually was. Don Wright was in the first match against Don Lambrick, Les Thatcher and Tony Ledoux in the second against the Superstar and Joe Costello, Charlie Cook versus someone who was making a, his very first appearance for Southeastern and going to become the top heel in the territory by the summer of 1976, Don Carson. Robert Fuller versus Norvell Austin, another future star from Southeastern, is making his debut on this same night. Bob Armstrong is going to defend his Southern Heavyweight Championship against Tommy Siegler. Uh, there's a Brass Knucks Championship match with the champion Rock Hunter against Ron Wright. And the main event was a no time limit, no DQ, mask versus hair match between the assassin and myself. Uh, and I didn't much like the idea of putting up my hair. And, uh, but the assassin, uh, you know, he thought there's no way he's going to lose his mask. So, uh, that's how we end up in that situation. I'd like to give everyone the results of this card after we talk about the TV show of November 1st that promoted this card. Uh, this was the first of four very important TV shows in November. The beginning of four weeks of ratings compiled by Arbitron and Nielsen back in the day that's going to determine how well we were doing and how many homes were watching us every Saturday. These ratings were also very important to the television station. That's the way they made the decision to how much to charge the advertisers based upon the audience, obviously. Fans in the studio audience were on the edge of their seats when they got in that day into the studio and found out that we were going to the Coliseum for the next event. Newcomer Don Carson, with his dyed blonde hair and long black glove up to his elbow on his right hand, opened the TV show versus Jerry Myatt. It was his first appearance in Southeastern Wrestling in a television or in a, uh, a live event. Uh, Carson this time was a great worker and a super heel. Fans had not seen him before, and he had them booing like crazy before the match even started. He did some pretty decent wrestling moves to start the match, as I had suggested to him in the dressing room. Do a little wrestling, Don. and uh, But when my Jerry Myatt, his opponent, uh, finally got took a little bit of advantage. Carson got vicious, man. He abandoned those wrestling skills, and uh, he went right back to being the real heel he was. In less than five minutes, as I remember, he had everyone in that studio on their feet booing him as if he'd been there for 20 years. As Jim Barnett would say, I'm sitting back up in the uh, control room and watching the show, as old Jim Barnett would say, I could see nothing but money, money, money. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, he Carson just got over instantly. And I said, geez, man, I think we can ride that horse. And uh, and we did for a lot, of, a lot of the 1976. We set records with uh, Don Carson. After the match, he went to the set with Les to show another great skill, his interviews. I already had an angle figured as soon as I knew he was coming. He was working with Charlie Cook in the Coliseum show, but he got into a problem he had recently had with my brother in another territory. So he was brief about what he was, his thoughts on Charlie Cook, 
In fact, I think he said something like, uh, he's not good enough to shine my shoes, much less beat me in the ring. Uh, But then he went on to challenge my brother Robert to wrestle him. He said, we had problems in the the other side of Tennessee, and uh, I want to settle it over here. I'll give Robert Fuller $500 if he can last five minutes in the ring with me. If uh, if I can't beat him in five minutes, I'm going to give him $500. Well, this was just added to the card. Now this seven-match card has become an eight-match card. We've done broke the record again by adding that eighth match. Second match on the Southeastern Wrestling TV program was champion. We're going to have a television championship match. We're in ratings period. I want to blow them away. Uh, we got the champion, Tommy Siegler, and he's going to defend on television against Norvell Austin. That's the type of match you want to put in your house show. Uh, we put it on TV. All TV championship matches were a 20-minute time limit. Phil Rainey, the announcer, introduced Norvell in the ring by himself, and he got a chorus of booze naturally, and then Tommy Sigler rounded the corner in the studio with his beautiful, huge TV championship trophy. Crowd went crazy, and the ref took the trophy, set it in the middle of the ring. Tommy shook hands with fans all around three sides. There was three sides of the ring that had fans on them. And when he started into the ring, Norvell jumped him. The ref handed the trophy out to someone on the floor and rang the bell. And that match, that it ended up in a time-minute draw, it was maybe the best match that Southeastern Wrestling Television Program had had so far. The match was everything I could have wanted. It's, it set the bar for the next three television shows in November, I thought. Siegler went to the set with Les and was joined by Robert. Robert spoke briefly about his match with Norvell in the Coliseum and then accepted Don Carson's challenge to give Robert 500 if he couldn't beat him in five minutes, Tommy Siegler spent the rest of his interview, most of it, in fact, thanking Bob Armstrong for giving him a shot at Armstrong's Southern title. And and he just professed right there in front of everybody how much respect he had for Bob Armstrong, that he was a personal friend of his. It was a great interview. Studio audience loudly responded, making it even better. And that's what's happening in these programs. As we do more of these audios that we have done in the last couple of shows, fans will hear this small studio crowd, how much noise these people can really make. Yeah. Just a question, obviously here with the the upcoming match with Siegler versus a debuting Bob Armstrong for the Southern title, this is a technical match between two baby faces. So I'm curious if you had anything in mind, if there was sort of a rationale for Bob Armstrong coming in and his first match in being going to be a technical match against one of your big baby faces, Tommy Siegler. Uh, I had something in mind for almost everything back in those days, Luke, to be <laughs> honest with you, man. I was putting a lot of thought in everything. Uh, uh, yes, and I had something in mind. In fact, I'm going to bring them back in the second Coliseum show. They are going to have a tremendous baby face match. And I love those matches. And, you know, and the fans in Knoxville, they had grown up on Ron Wright and a chisel and all that stuff. But I, by golly, they got into this one in the Coliseum. They stood up. They were so involved in a technical, as you put it, and scientific wrestling match. That made me feel wonderful because that's the name on the marquee out there wrestling. And they gave it to him that night in that match between Bob Armstrong and Tommy Siegler. And both those guys were great workers. 
And we come to the personality profile, the middle segment in every one of those Southeastern television shows. And this one is with the newcomer star, Don Carson. Now, Don Carson and I had a lot of history, as a matter of fact. I wrestled my very first match with my father as my partner against Don Carson and another great Southern wrestler, Dick Dunn, in Arkansas. In 1968, I was still in college playing basketball. I sneaked off and wrestled, and I probably shouldn't have. If you did, I could have lost my scholarship. But Dad says, let's go to Arkansas. Nobody will know it. (laughs) So uh, I got my shot in the ring. My grandfather, Roy Welch, was there that night. My grandmother and my great-grandmother, they were all in attendance. And as a testament to Don Carson being able to get heat, he knew my grandmother and my great-grandmother were on the first row. He knew who they were, and he hammerlocked me and took me down in front of him, right in front of him, not two minutes into the match. And he cranked my arm. He had a hammerlock, and he got behind me, and he's cranking my arm. I'm laying on my stomach, and I'm screaming like crazy. I'm selling it good. And he cranked my arm up my back for probably three minutes, and he just kept screaming at them. And the first thing he says to him was something like, what do you think of this baby boy now? <laughs> I, was, oh, I was almost laughing, you know, and, I, and oh, man, my, my, my grandma and my great-grandma, they were mad, boy. And I, I just kept selling it like crazy. And uh, so my grandmother got up out of her chair and came to the ring apron. She reached in there to try to get a hold of me like she was going to be able to pull me out of the ring. And he just oh. laughed at her and he and he grabbed me and he drug me to the middle of the ring where she couldn't reach me. You know, and then he started in again, cranking my arm and he looked at her again and he screamed at her and he says, I'm going to break his arm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was it. Then my great grandmother, 95 years old, got out of her seat on the front row and she came stand side by side with my grandmother at the apron of the ring, screaming at Don Carson. The police came down. They took both of them out of the building and they were going to arrest them until my grandfather who everybody knew there because he'd been around there for so many years, he stopped the cops by telling them, hey, that's my wife and my mother-in-law. And and Carson and Dudden got back in the dressing room, had the biggest laugh about what happened, man. It was like, wow, wasn't that fun, right? Man, yeah. And I mean, getting winding up your your grandmother and great-grandmother, who I'd assume they'd been perhaps smartened up to some degree, by Roy Welch. They were, they'd been smartened up uh, years ago, but my grandmother never, never got the past it. She told me a story one time, <laughs> you know, she, 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 Roy was wrestling a guy, a heel, and she didn't like it. And she is sitting up in the top of the bleachers. And she, there was back when they had hat pins. Oh yeah. And she pulled out her hat pin and came down to the ring and she jammed her hat pin all the way up to the little button in the in the wrestler's thigh. Oh okay. he screamed, but he screamed and he tried to kick her. He, he he looked at her and he tried to kick her. And then the next week when he went to the town, he was wrestling Roy again. He got on the microphone. He got announced. He got on the microphone and he says, I'm going to look at this crowd. And if I see that crazy woman here in this crowd tonight, I'm not wrestling. 
And he and uh, the, the story was that he took 10 minutes. He really literally went out and looked at the crowd and he spotted her. She's way up in the top of the building and he pointed at her and he goes, there she is. And he left. He left the building and went. Out. <laughs> they came. So Roy had to buzz the cops. He said, go get that woman and throw her out. <laughs> That's his wife. <laughs> so they threw my grandma out. And the guy came back and wrestled Roy. So, I mean, she never really got to where she was. She she was always just a just a huge mark. She just couldn't believe <laughs> that we weren't getting hurt. So most of this personality profile was based around the black glove that Carson was wearing on his hand. And Les kept asking the appropriate questions, obviously, about what Carson wanted to you know, about what what's that glove all about? And Carson kept trying to keep his attention off of it. It was his very first show, his very first personality profile. And he he started bragging to Les. He says, uh, you know, I train coon dogs, man. I've trained 27 coon dogs. I trained the best coon dogs. And, and Les kept going, man, no way. Wait a minute. We're not want to talk about it. And he said, well, that's what this profile is about. Anyway, you ain't supposed to talk about anything but what you do, your hobbies and stuff. And Les kept digging. Finally, he asked Carson, he, he asked him four or five times. He'd interrupt Carson. He'd be wanting to talk away from the glove, and then Les would interrupt him about the glove again. So finally, Carson explained that he had a broken hand one time, and, his knuckle, and he had knuckle problems that required him to wear some type of protection on his hand, or he wouldn't be able to continue wrestling. He told Les that he had been approved. His glove had been approved by the National Wrestling Alliance, and he didn't want it to ever be brought up again. Uh, obviously, he made a weapon out of his glove over the next year, and he had turned his back on the referee so the referee couldn't see it, and he shake his hand downward and supposedly load something inside his glove, and then when he hit you with it, you always bled. I never saw him. We never had him hit somebody with that glove that didn't bleed. It got tremendous heat. As time went by, he nicknamed his glove Peanut Butter. And I never knew where he got that name, but as time went on, as I said, he he would say stuff like, I'm going to use my peanut butter on him. You know, and the fans quickly grew to hate Don Carson. And he was, in my opinion, the first great heel in Southeastern wrestling history. He really got the company off the ground as a heel. Third match on this program, the TV program that's promoting this first Coliseum show, is uh, The Assassin accompanied by Norvell Austin and Rock Hunter versus Rocky Smith, who was the former Inferno, the one that had the loaded boot. And this was another great TV match with Hunter having to get involved. The Smith was really taking it to the assassin. It looked like he was about to beat the assassin. Hunter got involved because the assassin, him, that was his buddy. He had his little army going. And the assassin won the match. All three heels went to the set with Les after the match. Norvell talked about how badly he wanted to beat Robert to prove he was a legit star. Uh, Hunter talked about defending his Brass Nucks title against the overall wearing hillbilly Ron Wright. Uh, the assassin finished it up in his own inimitable style by promising fans that they were going to see me bald-headed at the end of the hair versus mask match with me. He also reminded the fans that he had been in no less than 22 matches in his career for his mask, and he had never lost one. 
this interview got the fans highly involved, obviously, and it set the stage for the last match of the show. Phil Rainey opened up the last match. He introduced a special event on today's program, a first-ever Southeastern Wrestling handicap match on television. He then introduced Tony Peters and Don Lambert at a combined weight of 580 pounds versus the Tennessee stud, me, by myself. Uh, I waited for my introduction until he called my name, and then I entered the studio. I got a great ovation from the crowd, and I entered the ring, and both of them jumped me as I came through the ropes. They had me down for about a minute. When I started to come back on both of them, the roof came off that television studio. After a pretty lengthy comeback with lots of wraparounds, that's what the boys used to call my punches, uh, <laughs> I threw Peters out of the ring, and I put my fuller leg lock on the 285-pound Don Lambert. Uh, he got it. He gave it up quickly. I mean, boy, almost instantly. Uh, nobody wanted to endure much of that hold. That was very painful. He gave up right away, and I kicked him out to the floor. And, and uh, Tony Peters was about to come in the ring. I grabbed him, pulled him in the ring, and I put the same hold on him. And he submitted quicker than <laughs> Lambert did. And I uh, got up and kicked him out of the ring. And the, both of them hobbled off the dressing room, and I went to the set for the final interview of that television program. Uh, thank goodness there was a two-minute commercial break before it started because I was blown up after beating two big guys like that. And I'd been off for two months with a messed-up collarbone, and I was really badly out of shape. Uh, so Les was a consummate professional. He picked up on the fact that I was blown up, man, and I'm not going to be able to do any talking here like catch my breath. And he started the interview with a short description of how all of this program and angle had started. Uh, how I was involved with the assassin, I was turned on by the assassin, I was injured by the assassin, uh, out of the ring for two months, and uh, when it got to the point where I could breathe, <laughs> I started, I took it from there. And uh, I started out answering the assassin's claim of the 22 matches he had had for his mask and never lost. And I, I think I said something like, uh, your luck's run out. You know, 22's a good number, but your luck's run out. Then I said, you know, I told Les, I said, you know, Les, I played a lot of basketball, high school and college, and my number in, on my jersey was 23. That's my lucky number. And I said, since he's got 22 wins and this is number 23, I said, there's not going to be another number 24 for him in his mask. I'm going to get his mask on this 23rd match of his. And I had a plan. I told Les, I had a plan. And it was the way to win. And I'd just done it by beating two guys with the same hole that I'm going to beat the assassin with. And that was my father's fuller leg lock. I spoke directly to the assassin then back in the dressing room saying, I know you're back there and I know you're listening. And I reminded him how I watched my father beat him with the fuller leg lock in 1967 to win the Georgia Tag Championship with his partner, Ray Gunkel, in Atlanta. I said the reason no one could take his mask off is because they couldn't hold him down long enough. The reason, I said, I will be the first to ever remove the assassin's mask is because I intend to beat him with the fuller leg lock, and he'll finally have to remove his mask because he lost, since the match is basically hair versus the mask. If I beat him, he's got to take his mask off. But then I stopped, and I, I said something like, a, but just in case, he decides not to remove his mask when he loses. 
I know how to keep him down long enough to take it off all by myself. Les looked at me and he says, yeah, how are you going to do that? And I said, I'm going to break his leg with my dad's toehold. And uh, Les kind of cracked up like, oh, boy, that's pretty good. And then I finished by saying, you know, Les, I, I know fans didn't like me when I came here, but they have been great to me since I decided to change my style of wrestling and go after the assassin and rock hunter instead of being their friends. Everyone has supported me, I said, through my injury, and now I want to do something very special for all the Southeastern wrestling fans. And then, like an announcer, I said, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to see the ugly face of the assassin, show up next Friday night in that big, beautiful Coliseum, and I guarantee you, you'll be the first wrestling crowd in history to ever see the assassin's face. Mm. And so the stage is set for what looks to be a huge blow-off match between you and the assassin. I got to ask, since you had wrestled a handicap match on television, through your career, have you been the single combatant in many handicap matches? Well, I tell you what, oddly enough, Lou, it was a regular occurrence in St. Louis. Sam Muchnick loved handicap matches. And when you went in there and he wanted to get you over, he would throw you in the ring with two guys. Uh, I've wrestled two on television in St. Louis before and two in the house show before. I've wrestled with a partner against Harley Race in handicap match. So, uh, you know, it, not many places did it, but I thought, geez, this is something different. They've never seen it. I need to do it here because I want to get myself over. I had not been back working but two weeks. I needed wins, and this was a powerful win over two big guys like that to do it by yourself. So let's talk real quick, Lou, about the results of this first Coliseum card in November 1975. Les Thatcher and Tony Ledoux beat the superstar and Tony Costello in the first match. Don Wright beat Don Lambert. Don Carson beat Charlie Cook. And my brother Robert won over Norvell Austin. And then Robert came back to do the challenge with Carson after both of them had wrestled. And Carson couldn't beat him. <laughs> and actually, Rob did a little bit of running like he was a heel. It was kind of good. You know, Carson had thought he had him and he would get out and he would kill time. And Carson, get in here, get in here, get in here. You know, and Rob was just smiling and laughing and having a good time. And uh, time ran out. They rang the bell, and Carson owed Rob 500 bucks. But he refused to pay him the money. <laughs> he left the ring, and he wouldn't pay off, which was, that's a great heel move, too. Rock Hunter lost his Brass Nucks title to Ron Wright that night because Robert, who was partners with Ron Wright, came down and got involved in the match, and uh, Hunter got beat. And my match with the Assassin, my hair up against the Assassin's mask, was absolutely a wild match. It was a finish like no one had ever seen. I don't think it had ever been done before. Never heard of it being done before nor since. I beat the assassin with my dad's fuller leg lock, just like I promised I would do on TV. As soon as I put the leg lock on him, the assassin gave up instantly. I hardly got him to the mat, and he was already saying, I give, I give, I give, I give. Referee rang the bell. He got up immediately. He wasn't hurt. I didn't have time to hurt his leg because he, he gave up so quick. So I could not do too much damage to his leg because of that. So after the bell then, they rung the bell, they, they raised my hand, and the assassin refused to take his mask off. 
So we got into it again. And I was about to get his mask off when he grabbed me in a headlock and I fired him off into the ropes. The referee was behind me. When the assassin came off the ropes, we collided, the assassin and I. And the assassin went back through the ropes and onto the floor. And I went back and slammed into the referee who was behind me. So assassin's on the floor, me and the referee in the ring, and we're all three down. And here comes from the dressing room, Rock Hunter and a second assassin to the ring. Hunter grabbed the real assassin and took him quickly back to the dressing room. While I'm still down and the referee's down, the new assassin, the fake assassin, let's call him, rolled into the ring and laid there like he had been hurt. When the referee and I got to our feet, the bogus assassin's laying there. He looked, he was dressed exactly like the real assassin. The same size, you couldn't hardly tell the difference, and the crowd was going absolutely wild. They, they, they saw it, but I didn't see it, and the referee didn't see it. So he let the referee take his mask off, and uh, and the crowd kept going, "No, no, he's not the right guy." And, you know, <laughs> uh, it was fantastic. What a finish that was! Uh, the, so the real assassin never took his mask off. And a fake assassin took his place and took his mask off. Wow, that is quite a switcheroo, I gotta say. Can you recall who the uh, the faux assassin was? I don't remember, but I think Jody brought him with him to uh, to the matches that night, and uh, he was a buddy of his. He may have rode in with him and Hunter from Atlanta, and I knew what we were going to do, and he did too. And I said, I need a second assassin, and. And he brought a guy that looked just like him. So it was a phenomenal finish, and uh, it's it's going to set up well for the next show uh, because uh, there's still going to be something to do with the assassin. The crowd that night was about 4,000 people. Average ticket price was 4 bucks. It was about a $16,000 gross house. I paid 28% to the wrestlers, about 4500 total. Ledoux, the superstar, Tony Costello, Don Wright, Don Lambert, and the referee all got about 150 each. Thatcher, Cook, Carson, Robert, and Norvell got $300 each. And the top guys of the night, Ron Wright Hunter, the assassin, and I took a payoff on this particular night for the first time ever. We all got $500 each. So guys that had worked all four of those nights that week, that came in and worked all four of those nights, the bottom guys, it made $330 each and for those four events. The middle guys made $570 each, and the top guys made $850 each. In 1975, that's some pretty decent money. And basically, Lou, it was just the beginning of what guys were going to start making in Southeastern in the future. This thing was about to take off. I was just uh, more than happy to see those guys make that kind of money in 1975 and just could not imagine how much we're going to do in 1976. And so the wheels have been set in motion for a beginning of a pretty legendary month for a very young Southeastern promotion. So with that, I say you can become friends with Ron Fuller at Facebook. Look for Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. You can also find Ron on Twitter and Instagram at Ron Fuller Welch. Our usual co-host, the great Brian Last, can be found on Twitter at Great Brian Last. 
And to keep up on news about Arcadian Vanguard and our full, you might say, stud stable of podcasts, feel free to check us out on Twitter at SuperPodcasts or Facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. You can hear the great Brian Last on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or, of course, through your favorite podcast listening app. And yours truly, if you want to see my humble, meager Twitter feed, I am at Lukip, L-O-U-K-I-P. All right, Ron, so next week we get deeper into November of 75, and I think the sparks are just beginning to fly. Yes, they are. And, uh, you know, uh, next week uh, it's the second of the three shows in the Coliseum. And this time, we're going to bring the biggest. Uh, Andre the Giant is going to return for his second time to Southeastern Wrestling. There's going to be a two-ring triple chance battle royal that night with $7,000 going to the winner. And a tremendous card underneath that. Things are starting to rock in Southeastern. And uh, just can't wait to see what's going to happen uh, when Andre comes to town. And and next week, I'm going to have another one of those Andre stories that I like to tell. And uh, I'm going to tell you about what happened after the matches the second time that Andre came to Knoxville. I personally cannot wait. Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and the great Brian Last, I'm Lou Kippelman. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. Ron and Brian will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the great Smoky Mountains. 